Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Evolver, sponsored by the Alchemist Kitchen. Hosted by Ken Jordan. When I grew up as a little kid in Queens, my awareness of nature was limited to the trees that grew in the parks and the pigeons that landed on windowsills. Meat came wrapped in cellophane from the store and was only remotely related to actual living beings that I encountered maybe a couple of times in a petting zoo. The night sky had almost no stars because they were washed out by the glare of city lights. I was already long into puberty when I finally got a full dose of clear country sky and recognized the magnitude of a starry night. I spent hours walking across an open field with my head bent back, staring upwards in awe, shocked, and somehow luckily didn't step into a cow pie. Since then, my connection to nature has grown hugely, but it's been a slow and deliberate process. Today, half the planet's population is urban. It's a little scary to think that my peculiarly disconnected experience may well be shared with so many people. But that's the challenge our generation faces as we're being called to wake up and recognize our interconnection with all of nature. But the question is, how will it happen? Ancient indigenous practices that were honed in and thrived in wild environments translate awkwardly in urban settings. But to truly shift the direction of our society away from its most destructive tendencies, and rearrange our priorities around sustainability, it's necessary to feel, viscerally, what it's like to be in sync with the planet. The body is an extraordinarily sensitive tool for connection once you cultivate your awareness. To turn on technologically sophisticated 21st century social media junkies, we need a lot of invention and inspiration to create new practices that evoke the timeless truths. My guest today, Ezzy Spencer, was a hard-driving lawyer working for social justice in her home of Australia when she started doodling the moon's phases in the margins of her journal. In the process, she found herself rediscovering some of those timeless truths about the cycles of nature and how the human psyche is actually tuned in to those cycles, if only you pay attention. She began to share the practice she developed for herself with her friends and colleagues. And from their encouragement, it grew into a book called Lunar Abundance, a lunar-inspired self-knowledge and self-care practice, which became a bestseller. Edzi also holds a PhD in emotional well-being after trauma. Together with tracking the moon cycle, this was her entry into the importance of the emotional realm, which she continues to explore through her work today. I talked with Ezzy about her own experience of opening up to these subtle but powerful spiritual currents and how she navigated the path for herself. She has an inspiring and instructive story about how our lives can be transformed when we stop the hamster wheel long enough to notice what else might be going on around us and inside of us. Once you get to that quiet and vibrant place, you can hear nature talking. Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does, but for conditions such as stress and anxiety, Health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals, and scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. 
Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. The effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil can last for four hours or more, but the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery District of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label. Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. And searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ, and a selection of vetted products. Or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan, between Bowery and 2nd Avenue, and talk to one of our staff herbalists. At the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. How are you working with the moon in your practice right now? (laughs) Well, the moon has been a guide for me for over 10 years now. And so I really work with the moon in a couple of ways as a natural timekeeper. So I set intentions at the new moon and I work with those intentions throughout the entire month. So the moon cycle lasts for about a month. And I've created a very unique life as a result of being very intentional about what it is that I want to be doing and how I want to be. And you use the moon, the cycle of the moon, as a way of setting intention and following intention. Exactly. And in addition to that, really working and living in a sustainable way. So I've been in a very different kind of working environment in the past and very much caught up with the push and the hustle and the stress and the striving. And I know for myself that that only leads to burnout. I'm a highly sensitive, empathic person. And so to get away from that kind of heavy-duty, stressful existence, you moved from Bali and Australia to New York. Is that right? Am I getting that straight? (laughs) Do you know what? This is my (laughs) ultimate test of my practice. Ah. How can I bring this practice to the epicenter and still be able to be calm and relaxed and live in a very simple way? And how can I bring my practice to people who are living very mainstream existences, who don't have the opportunity to pick up and go and spend some time in a spiritual sabbatical on a tropical island and because they've got jobs and families and real life obligations how can my work meet people where they are and provide real practical benefit and in order to 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 really demonstrate that to myself i had to to be here and make sure that it it worked this is the place that needs it i really am feeling that yeah, feeling that more and more and feeling the awakening here in New York City more and more. It's a really interesting time in a super interesting place. It is really interesting. Now, tell me more about your experience of that, because boy, I can talk about that for only about 10 or 15 hours. But you, <laughs> <laughs> I'm really curious to hear how you're, how you're seeing that. Yeah, well, I've, 
visited New York a number of times over the years. I've always felt that it's my calling to be in New York. I first came to New York right after I finished high school in the year 2000. And it was a very different place then. I experienced it as a very cold place. And not just because it was the middle of winter when I arrived, but I experienced it as... um, as not really having the heart and soul, which I I felt um, was necessary for me in terms of being in a place that, that I resonated with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I wasn't tapping into the right places, um, perhaps. But, no, but I, think, I think the city has changed a lot since 2000. There's no question to me that it's much <laughs> more open in a certain way. I find the kind of creative cauldron and the... Um, the receptivity, the interest, the openness, um, and the, oh, gosh, the the real winds of change that are moving through this city um, have, are palpable to me. And I noticed that particularly last year, so 2017, I spent a fair amount of time, I spent a fair amount of time 2016, 2017 here. And I noticed the shift between 2016, 2017, and now in 2018, it just feels like, it's happening and it's and it's accelerating um, in a way which can be pretty disorienting for a lot of people. I feel if they don't have the grounding and the centeredness and the practices, and I think the support mechanisms in place to be able to hold such a rapid awakening. Yeah, well, it depends how much LSD you take and go to House of Yes, basically dancing all night, or is it, a, <laughs> or can you can you bring it into your daily? practice in a way where you're connecting to this. What I see is a, a burgeoning community yeah. of people who are experiencing some kind of consciousness shift are participating in it in their own lives, are being taken out of their comfort zone and their sense of like what they should be doing on a, uh, on a career path way um, and are seeing their interconnectedness with the planet in a whole new sort of visceral understanding. And that's emerging through, you know, we're certainly seeing it at Alchemist Kitchen and a lot of the stuff that's been going on there the last couple of years. Um, But then, you know, and then the assemblage, which was where we met when that first opened up, and other places where a community that didn't really exist three, four, five years ago is gathering Mm. in New York. And I feel something which is, so exciting about that burgeoning community is that feeling of waking up together and being able to go through this process um, in in <laughs> with other people in relationship. And yeah. when I started to wake up, I felt so lonely and so weird because there wasn't anyone in my sphere who was having an experience like I was having. And this was before the, uh, I mean, I won't say before the internet, but it was definitely before uh, Instagram. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Yep. <laughs> um, and it was before Facebook was even really a big thing. So I feel like there wasn't that level of connectivity that I had to the others who are all around the world who are waking up as well. So I feel like it is such an exciting time here. And one of the things that I notice, and I'm so grateful for, in fact, being in New York, is just how much people are showing up for each other to to hold the awakening process because we're not supposed to be doing this alone. We need to do it together. Community is a huge piece of this. Huge. And, you know, the not so unspoken theme that runs through most of what we do with Evolver is this notion that there's a new kind of culture that's emerging to hold to help people hold their awakening moments so that they can go deeper together. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to serve that in different ways. This podcast is one. Alchemist Kitchen's another. There's different things that we've been doing to help to to be in service to that, essentially. Mm. But it's, you know, it's beyond any one person or group to kind of try to manage this or sort of keep a track of all of it because there's so much that's happening. How have you experienced that since you got back to New York? Like specifically, where are you noticing it? I'm curious. I mean, I feel like I'm noticing on every street corner. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's, 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 I mean, the people that I'm meeting, the conversations that I'm having, the depths that I'm going to. 
you know, and I think it's also important to hold each other to account as well, because I think that whenever there's a trend, there's going to be other motives that follow that. And there's plenty of distortion in it as well. So I feel like... Um, yeah, especially when the stuff is so uncharted mm-hmm. and it's so hard to know, like, what's the appropriate way to behave as a, a you know, somebody going through your awakening moment, still got a job, you're getting a job with somebody, you know, like you're, you're trying to navigate these material world demands and how do you live like this? Mm-hmm. What are your opportunities and what are the ways for you to, to, to send to yourself? When you were going through your experience a decade ago in Australia, how did that first awakening pin drop for you? I suppose I'll start at the start, which is that I was a pretty magical child. And I've always felt very connected to other realms and other ways of knowing reality beyond the 3D. As soon as I started to talk, I would tell my parents about the other families I had and the other lives that I'd lived. It was all very vivid. And um, Yeah. And your parents said... They thought I was really weird. <laughs> but I mean, they're amazing. I love my parents so much, but they're real muggles. You know, they just, they're like, what did we create? Did not get it. I guess my kid, when he was born, I was waiting for him when he was four or five years old to talk to me about his past lives. It didn't happen. Like, <laughs> What's wrong with my kid? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. My parents have yeah always been very, very supportive of me in the sense that they haven't tried to censor me, but I feel like life definitely started to censor me and I learned pretty early on that it wasn't very socially acceptable to know the things that I knew and see the things that I saw. And so I ended up going to law school and I did that because it was important for me to learn how to think in a very linear, logical and rational way. It was important for me to understand the 3D laws and the rules of this realm. And I'm really glad that I did that. Yeah. You went into law school, though, to do social justice work primarily, right? I mean, that, was that a part of the motivation for you? Because that's where you ended up going. I've always, always been interested in social justice. And then I had an accident a few years into law school, which really activated that sense of injustice in the world um, because I got to experience that only very briefly firsthand when I wasn't able to walk for a long time. And in fact, I was told I might not be able to walk again. So I ended up as an empath understanding, you know, a tiny, tiny little glimpse of what it's like to not have some of the privileges which I had. Ended up getting heavily into to volunteer work and social justice work and ended up working with Aboriginal people in Australia and continue to, and to this day, continue to work with Aboriginal people in Australia. I think it's the most fundamental injustice, the scourge of colonisation and, and the knock-on effects of that. So, so that was definitely a big part of my law school experience, was a big part of my post-law school experience. Um, but in addition to that, in terms of your question, how did the opening up, waking up start to manifest for me? I was working in the law in my mid-20s, very much in the push and the hustle and the strive and the go, 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 living from the neck up in so many ways because that's just how my profession operated. That's how my peers and um, and seniors, people in the profession were were showing me that was the way to be. And so it was a matter of like drinking coffee in the morning just to wake up and do the super long hours and then drink wine at night to wind down. Um, Your body gets on a certain kind of rhythm. Yeah. yeah. High stress. Yeah. High cortisol, high adrenaline. And so I was really searching for something elemental that I felt was missing. I felt like I wanted to come back to connection with that magical self that I was so in touch with as a child, you know, natural cycles and rhythms and that sense of connection to a greater cosmos and a greater knowing of my own intuitive, deep wisdom. And you're a little witchydom. (laughs) I mean, you know, when you're a kid and you have that kind of connection, you just take it for granted. It's something that you're like in. And then I guess, you know, material world infiltrates your consciousness and stuff kind of recedes and you feel like, oh, that's not appropriate. appropriate. I shouldn't be doing this so much. And it's probably, so you had a moment where you, you, you kind of went, oh, wait a minute, where'd I go? Like, was that a snap? bang moment or was it kind of like a slow burn thing for you? 
I had a pretty big moment, but it happened a few years later. And I feel like sometimes we want to rush to like the epiphany. Um, but I feel like the the slow and gradual opening and awakening for me, which took a few years, was really important in my own journey because it wasn't um, like it wasn't dramatic. It just was this feeling of there being something that I was missing and I didn't know what it was and I didn't know where to go to look for it because I didn't know anybody in my life who was embodying it. And it was before, I mean, the internet was around, but it was definitely before, you know, all of the social media and and all of it. Um, so I felt very, very much... Um, like it was a, it was a, it was a sense rather than anything that I saw that I was missing and so I started to draw in my journal the moon faces and I don't know exactly when I started doing this I don't know exactly why I do know that I'd always had a natural fascination and curiosity with the moon as so many you know young people do and I feel like there was something so calming about that when I started to draw in the moon phases. So the full moon is one moon phase and, you know, I draw in a circle in my journal. And it just is like something you wrote on the side in the margin yeah, or something like. Yeah, you know. yeah, exactly. And I'd write about how I was feeling and then and I'd write, you know, every day, actually, I draw in the moon phase. And one mm. of the reasons why I did this is because. I and why one of the reasons why I kept doing it, I should say, is that I started to find that there was a correlation between how I was feeling and what was going on in my world and where the moon was in the sky. Oh, really? Like what? Can you give an example? Yeah. So the full moon, for instance, is the, I mean, everyone knows the full moon, um, but it's it, when I turn into a werewolf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And it's a really interesting. I used to time. turn into. I don't do that anymore. But I used to turn into a werewolf. Yes. <laughs> I want to know what you turn into now. We'll save that for another podcast. Oh God. <laughs> um, so I would, you know, feel just. I would have a surge of energy at this time. You know, this is this is very much a um, a, a practice where it's about coming into connection with your own feelings and emotions and what's going on for you internally, your own internal landscape. The moon represents the subconscious mind as well as all of the uh, emotional realm. And then at the balsamic moon phase, for instance, which is the eighth of the eight moon phases now in lunar abundance, which is the practice that I teach, there's eight moon phases that we work with. And the balsamic moon is uh, the restorative phase that comes right at the end, you know, as the moon's waning down to dark at the end of the cycle before a new cycle starts again. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I'd find that I felt really introverted and I'd want to draw in and want to give myself some space and time to reflect, give myself the permission to not keep pushing, like not keep going until 8 p.m. to finish that report or, you know, not try to go out to that other thing or, you know, whatever it was. It just, just happened to sync up that way. I found that there was such a natural resonance with where the moon was in the sky and how I was feeling. And there were these correlations in uh, where, where the moon was and how I was feeling that repeated over time. So there were these patterns that I started to observe. Uh -huh. And two really interesting things happened with that. One is that I started to allow myself to pause in, you know, these quieter, more reflective times rather than always pushing. And then I found that when I did allow myself the space to pause, I received insights, which then meant that when I started moving again, I was so much more effective. And so I started to create this really beautiful rhythm in my life where it felt so much more sustainable in terms of being able to show up and be in my personal power and be in integrity, do what I said I was going to do. But I had a lot more energy because I was actually working a lot less and expending much less effort. Oh, but they don't like that when you're a lawyer. When you're a lawyer, they're like, hey, that thing is due at four o'clock in the morning on Thursday and you got to stay up all night and get it done. <laughs> they're not going to, you say, well, listen, hey, I'm in my balsamic phase. <laughs> How do you navigate that? Yeah. Well, a really interesting thing happened is that I started a PhD actually, and I was looking at emotional well-being after trauma. You stepped away from the lawyerdom. I was still doing the, the legal stuff as well. Okay. Um, and one of the things that I started to find is that I was so much more productive as in I was like meeting my deadlines and I was doing better with it by going with my own flow that 
it just made more sense to people who were supervising me or working with me just to allow me to do my own thing. It was so magical to me that my life was starting to to unfurl in this way that I went deeper and deeper into that. And I started to share what it was that I was doing and what I was learning. And people were fascinated all around me. Um, so, you well, know. Well, so I'm curious, are the people who were around you then, were they other lawyers? Yeah. And they didn't go like, well, this is just too woo for me. I think what's interesting is that when you are embodying something that works, so when you are shining with a kind of vitality and passion, then people don't think about it so much. You know, it's not that I was standing up and preaching and proselytizing and saying, hey guys, like we're doing this all wrong. We should be doing it like this. Instead, I was doing things in a way that really, really worked for me. And so people, including like my boss would come to me and say, what are you doing? Oh, really? That's so cool. Yeah. That's so interesting. And this is one of the things I think about the lunar practice, because it's a very, um, you know, it's a very gentle energy. It's very powerful energy. It's really transformative, actually. Um, But it has a magnetic quality to it. And I feel like it allows you to stop pushing and reaching out all the time, but allow opportunities to come to you. So let's talk about the practice for a second, because I'm really curious. The, and this is what your book is about. Lunar abundance is really like laying out the practice, how you came came to the practice and also specific ways that people could implement it yeah. in, their, in their life. Mm. It lays out a way of connecting to these vast natural cycles so that you can feel yourself in greater resonance mm. with something that is outside of yourself, beyond yourself. That's essentially the wave of all of nature, right? Yeah, whilst being very deeply connected to yourself at the same time. But it it can shift your awareness of what it is that you are as a self in the sense that instead of thinking of yourself as I am this mechanical object that alarm goes off at 6.45, two cups of coffee, out the door, you know, after the shower... Ding, 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 you know, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. It releases you from that attachment in a way to this very uh, linear way that we most of us are trained to be effective in the world and almost dehypnotizes us, can dehypnotize you from that connection and put you into a larger flow. Is that how you experience that I am now asking you how you experienced the epiphany that led to your book that's not a fair question really for me to ask but so why don't you correct me (laughs) (laughs) I like listening to your interpretation of it I feel like there's definitely um uh just a being in the flow of life that comes quite naturally when you're able to peel back the layers of what you're told you should be or think or do and start to encounter more of your own unique essence and understand how you can best contribute to the greater whole. And so that dance between coming back to your true self and then showing up and being of service is in my experience, like a really, really beautiful flow that then allows so much of the worry and stress and anxiety to fall away. And so much of, you know, those emotions I know personally because I experience them characterizes so much of modern life. And there's so many reasons why that's the case. But I feel like it is a way of, um, well, at least I personally experienced the lunar practice like this and, you know, now tens of thousands of people around the world are practicing this and, and have similar experiences that it's, it's, it's a way of really coming back into a deeper alignment with a natural order of things. And I feel like there is a, a trust a deep, deep trust, a trust of the self, but also a trust of the greater whole that comes along with that. It's just a sense of knowing that everything is perfect and everything is okay. Doesn't mean that there's not st- 
still work to do. Uh, obviously, coming from this place, as you have as well, like we live in a world with a lot of problems and a lot of injustice. So it's not about bypassing that or pretending that that's not there. But it's about coming to that from a very different place, not from wanting to like rescue or save or because you've got to prove yourself or your worth in some way and, you know, therefore completely burn yourself out in the process of trying to, you know, save the world. Um, But showing up in a way where there's much greater uh, emotional coherence and much greater uh, potential for positive impact with the way that you are able to, um, to, to, to serve. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's something beautiful that happens when you can let go of your need to control Mm. and allow things to flow. When you're able to essentially relinquish your sense of like, oh, it's all up to me. I have to make this happen. And you can sync up with these larger wave-like forces that can hold you and demonstrate to you what's available to you, right? A big piece of the of the work, as I recall it from the book, has to do with setting intention. I'm just wondering if you would talk a little bit about in your own life, the power of intention, and how intention has really helped you. And what's that all about? It's like, mm-hmm. you think about like, oh, I want to go somewhere. I want to achieve something. There's this thing that I would love to see happen. This conscious expression of it crystallizes it's as if something then gets put into motion. It's not even, it's nothing you can even control. It's like it becomes this, it becomes a thing. It becomes a powerful act. Mm, yeah, definitely. So um, yeah, intention and impermanence. So let's talk about intention because they're both there and both are real and both are true. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like, and both are part, like both are like core parts of the practice. Yeah. So, it, but intention is, is so incredibly powerful in terms of minimizing the amount of effort that you need to put in or just being very mindful about where you expend your very limited resources. And so intelligent design or front-loading the work is a big part of of the practice and that underlines uh, the intentional element of it. So in the practice, we set intentions at the new moon and the new moon is the start of the moon cycle and there's a new new moon every month. So the great thing about that is that right away embedded in the practice is this essence of abundance. Like it's not going to run out. There's always going to be another new moon you can trust that Mm -hmm. not everything needs to be done right now, you know, especially if you're just discovering the whole spiritual world. It's okay. Like this is a lifelong adventure that you're on. And so you don't need to do the radical transformation overnight. Just pick what's right in front of you right now or what you'd like to be right in front of you right now and be very kind and and gentle with yourself in terms of of what you pick. So when you pick an intention, is it just a couple of words that you'll choose or do you feel for yourself that there's a, I mean, some people will do, when they choose an intention, it's around a place or a way of being that they want to achieve. And then imagine how it would feel, Hmm. how it would be to hold it in the body. What it's going to be like to have that job or to go to that place or to be in, you know, to, to, to get to that thing. 
There's a very specific way of setting intentions in the lunar abundance practice. And again, recall that I was um, living from the neck up in so many ways. And so part of the practice is to come back into the body. And one of the ways that we come back into the body is through the feeling sense. And so we need to really have the physical sensations to be able to tap into the feeling sense. We need to be having the physical sensations in our body. And a lot of the time when we're in, you know, exploring with with lots of, you know, spiritual domains and, and concepts, it's actually very mental a lot of the time. There's a lot of fantasy. There's a lot of mental entertainment. And that can be fun as a gateway, but actually going below the mind and tapping into the body is where the real power happens, I find, to have that somatic living, breathing intention. So to come into the body, you need to open the heart. And to open the heart, there is a, you know, there's a, there's a range of practices, but, but working with the, working with the breath and, and working with some of the practices that I spell out of the book is a way to do that. Did you find those through various meditation practices that you had been doing? And you were sort of like going, ah, that really works for this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like mm-hmm. wh- what had you been doing? Mm-hmm. So I've been influenced by Taoist meditation practices. So there's a, a, a practice called the inner smile, which is not just Taoist, but it's um, found in Tibetan Buddhism and, and a number of other traditions as well. So it's a very simple practice where you work with a, a trigger. Uh, imagine that you're gazing into the eyes of someone who you love and then allow yourself to actually feel what that feels like. Um, you can allow yourself to smile and let the corners of your mouth turn up because they're energetic triggers as you smile and then allow yourself to actually, again, feel what's happening in your heart center, feel what's happening in your chest, feel the physical sensations of that. And what happens when most people in the West start to do that is that they realize how numb they actually are because we've turned off our feeling sense. I know that I actually intentionally cut off my feelings when I was 16 because I did not know how to process the intensity of the emotions that I was feeling at that time. And I didn't have the tools or the practices to be able to to open in in a safe and a productive way. I was highly emotionally reactive, as many teenagers are. Uh Yes. Um, So... Do you remember the first time as an adult, you noticed the feeling in your heart? I mean, I I definitely know the first time that I did this meditation. I feel like a lot of us, when we're talking about feeling in our hearts, I mean, of course we have moments of this and we're in love. Oh, no, no, but that's not what I mean. I don't mean that. I mean, I'm sure obviously, you know, there's all kinds of like, you know, crazy moments that'll happen along those lines. But that I have a very clear memory of the first time that I became aware that my heart felt and that it was actually a much far more sensitive and accurate barometer of what's going on in me than my brain. Mm. And it was a moment that my heart went like, boom. It's like, <laughs> oh my God, what is that? <laughs> and, you know, I just sort of felt a, a ring of light going out around my body for about five feet in every direction. And, at any rate, that's my own peculiar experience. But the, <laughs> I'm just wondering if you, because you, you mentioned that it being an important part of the practice. And it's something that people don't tend to talk about, mm. you know, in polite Western society. That is to say, just how the heart operates mm. as as a as a center of engagement and awareness, mm-hmm. right? Not only in a romantic way. Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, you know, and now we can measure this through um, HeartMath has the fantastic uh, equipment that you can use to measure your heart-brain coherency or your heart variability rate. And so we are starting to to get some objective measurements, um, and some of the brain mapping technology is fascinating to. To, to see what else is sort of going on on a, on a neurological level as well as we're, as we're starting to meditate. But actually, whilst that's very helpful to have that objective measurement, I suppose, for people who are more scientifically minded and, and appreciate the validation, it's a felt experience. And when you are able to, to, to tap into that, then suddenly you have a lot more power over your own body. You have a lot more power over your neurobiology. You have a lot more power over your emotional world. And then you have a lot more power over your life. And so come back to your point around the question around intention. It's I've, I have 
completely and very intentionally recreated my life to here I am living in... I like how you said that, by the way. You said recreated. Recreated sounds so much better to me because it's like it's recreational and recreated at the same time, which oh is like my God, incredibly it's so gorgeous. Fun. Yeah, that's awesome. It's, like, it's, like, <laughs> it's the most fun way you can recreate your life. Yes. Well, it has to be fun, right? Totally. You know, I feel like this is the thing. Sometimes you get so serious about all of this, but actually the joy is part of the experience of being alive. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the whole spectrum, you know, it's the whole range of, of human experience. And the more that you're able to open the heart, you know, the more emotionally coherent you become, the more you're able to then, yeah, I guess, dial down the intensity of, of your triggers and your emotional reactivity and the more harmonious your relationship becomes with yourself, but it also becomes a lot more harmonious with other people in your life as well, in the sense of, you know, your family, your loved ones. Oh, yes. Um, you know, your work colleagues, your clients, just even the people that you meet on the street. And it's possible to have a very positive impact, just the ripple effect, which is documented and researched. You know, you can have a very profound and positive impact on the planet by taking personal responsibility for what's going on inside of you and tapping into the power that you have as an individual to be an agent of change in oh, your own life's narrative. Oh my God. I mean, so I know we were going down another road for a second, but I'm going to, we'll come back to that. But in my experience doing social justice work, and I'm not surprised if this resonates with your experience, I remember so profoundly being surrounded by people intending to do the right thing, wanting to do the right thing, sometimes even doing the right thing, but doing it almost always for the wrong reasons and doing it out of anger and out of unresolved father issues. And, you know, this, this sense of, of fury that would drive the passion to make the world a better place. And it created so much tension and seemed to, in some ways, just ratchet up the stress level of, you know, of, of, of that, not just stress is the wrong word because it's far too mild. It's responding to the need for healing that so many people are, are experiencing with a hammer rather than a caress. And I'm so interested in your own path along this route because I know how passionate you are about your work with Aboriginals and your work with, you know, in, in the social justice realm. And as your sensitivity develops to, you know, what becomes possible in a healing opportunity, in a healing way, and how you navigate the traditional social justice, you know, situation, the scene, the people. Mm -hmm. Well, I think anger can be a really powerful catalyst for change. However, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I think anyone who has been working in these worlds knows that, that there's a lot of unprocessed um, trauma. I find that there's a lot of rescuer and saviour kind of activity that happens as well. So it's the, the intentions can be really, really good. But what I feel is most important is the impact. And so it doesn't really matter how, how pure an intention is if if it's coming from a, a slanted, um, warped place and has a negative impact. <laughs> I mean, it's a tricky thing. I feel like, I mean, I definitely don't have it all together for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm learning as well. But I feel like what I have observed is that the more that I'm able to, to do my own work in this area and step back, you know, the less I am wrapped up in my own very unconscious, you know, blind spots and egoic needs, you know, to, to take care of <laughs> or fix or change someone or something else without taking care of, of myself um, first, because that's really where the, the, the deep driver and motivation comes from a lot of the time. Um, and then once I have really taken care of myself to be able to show up in a very different way, which is very much more of a behind the scenes way. So it's interesting, you know, we're talking about it now because I don't talk about it that much, but also I feel like it's, uh, you know, it's, it's about getting out of the way a lot of the time, you know, so me working with Indigenous peoples in Australia is 
you know, about me using my platform in ways that I can to raise awareness, but it's about me supporting Indigenous peoples, you know, who who have got the most extraordinary levels of resilience um, and and understanding of what is required in order to affect justice and reconciliation. Um, and so it's around, you know, just getting out of the way a lot of the time and not needing, you know, to be seen or celebrated um, or not needing to have my sacrifices or my hard work, you know, um, to be what's in the centre of things. Um, and I think that's that's definitely been a shift for me over the course of my own career and it's something which I see a lot working in in that sector. Yeah, I sometimes wonder whether it should be an absolutely like necessary gate that people have to go through that they have to do their own work first before they begin to do social justice work. It's like, just, I'm sorry, you know, like I'm not going to, you know, join your peace group until you figured out what it means for yourself to be at peace. You know what I mean? And having been in many peace groups where (laughs) boy, you know, the tempers would be just flying about like, you know, why are we not achieving peace? You know, (laughs) like, well, you know, don't want to throw the baby out with the bath. No, 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 well. of course. And, and I know I, that's not yes, what you're doing, but I, I feel like yeah. it's important to say, you know, I think that so much of this is, is, I mean, so much of the injustice in our world is because of structural oppression. Absolutely. And so much of that, like, I mean, there are good reasons why people are angry about that. Oh, the, the anger is so justified. <laughs> the anger is so appropriate, yeah. but the anger can't be the end point. And yeah. being angry is not the best way to achieve something that's a change, yeah. a meaningful change. Exactly. So it's almost like I think of anger as the flag. Anger yeah. is the flag that says, hey, look over here. There's something going on over here. Better pay attention to this. Then take a deep breath and walk away <laughs> and deal with the anger and then come back and say, okay, now what can we do about that? I think that that use of emotions as data is really important on that bigger social level and then also on an individual level as well. There's so much that we can learn by approaching approaching our emotions in this way. With your work with the Indigenous peoples in Australia, did you get involved with their spiritual work, their spiritual practices, how they work with the moon and with cycles? I'm wondering if that's was part of your influence. I mean, I think not explicitly, not at the beginning. Um, you know, I don't really feel it's appropriate for me to talk, you know, too much. I mean, so much of this this spiritual knowledge is sacred, right? And of it's not for it's not That's why I'm asking you on a podcast. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think that there are there are elements that I, I talk about in the book and in terms of concepts that Aboriginal people have put out into the world. Like, for instance, Miriam Rose talks about the Dadiri, which is a, a concept of deep listening. And when we are in the push and the hustle and the go and the striving in this very solar world and there's a lot of talking and there's a lot of output and there's less input, there's less pausing and there's less listening. And... I feel like that's something which we can all benefit from cultivating is that sense of deep listening to ourselves and then also to the planet, you know, and what the Mother Earth really needs and where she's hurting, which is really obvious. That's the big one. Yeah. I just happened to stumble on a New York Times article the other day about where all the insects are going. Mm. That apparently, you know, they're like, certain places, 80% less insects than there were 25 years ago. Wow. They're just, I mean, it's not something that that science was even particularly watching very closely, Mm. but all these, they don't like to use the word, but they are frankly amateur insect enthusiasts around the world and insect watching clubs have been tracking this and they're seeing the insect genocide happening effectively. And no one is really paying any attention to this. And you think about like, there's so many different ways that the planet is suffering. Mm. And so what you're saying about listening to this and understanding that it's happening, just sensitizing yourself so you can pay attention is a big deal. Mm. So to come back to your practice, which is about the cycles of nature Mm. and attuning yourself, 
women seem to have an easier time with this than men, apparently. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's... I mean, it's interesting, though, because I feel like more and more men are really interested and more and more men are... uh, you know, I, I come into my work now and... These are workshops that you're leading? Yeah, and, you know, buy my book and reaching out. And and um, I feel like it's it's not really about gender. Women tend to have more of a natural fascination with the moon because of the uh, correlation with the menstrual cycle. And I feel like women have more of a... Uh, or there's more of at least a social acceptability around women feeling their emotions and the moon represents feelings and the emotions. So I feel like in some ways there's that uh, natural, when I say natural, it's um, natural to, you know, the Western world for women to, to gravitate towards this work first, but I don't think it's exclusive to women. What's your favorite personal data point about the moon? that you wished everybody knew that they don't know? Well, probably that it doesn't actually make us do anything. It's a mirror for us. This is the way that I work with the moon, is that it's a mirror. So there's a correlation between what happens in the sky and how we feel uh, here on Earth. I very much believe that. But I believe that when we talk about, you know, the moon made me do it, or, you know, I'm feeling like so overwhelmed right now. It must be a full moon. That's just an abnegation of personal responsibility. So I feel like when we're living in this living, breathing cosmos, we have such a deep interconnection with everything, but we also don't have to react to it. It doesn't have power over us. We're all living in a symbiosis with it. And so when we're able to claim our own personal power and then show up and meet whatever cycles and rhythms are happening. I mean, the moon's just one. It's a very trackable, observable cycle because it's a luminary. We can see it at night, especially if we're outside of the city, (laughs) Uh, which I recommend. It's a good idea. (laughs) Getting out every once in a while if you live in a city. But I feel like, like understanding like it's not it's not like a simple cause and effect it's this we live in a um we live in a very magical universe we we have a a very deep and nuanced relationship with our surroundings with our environment with nature and and we have an ability to to show up and be players in that as well and 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 to meet. And it's like that infinity loop, you know, there's a giving, there's a receiving, there's a mutual back and forth. But it's not like, you know, <laughs> our bodies are 95% water or whatever. And you know, oh, that it's, therefore uh, we must, the moon must be doing this. I mean, uh, maybe it is, maybe it's not. I mean, we actually don't have the, and I talk about this in the book as well, like we haven't got the scientific evidence or data there to support that. Partly, I mean, this is interesting. I mean, partly that's because it's really something that would sound the death knell on a respectable scientific career to do this research. And in and of itself, that's fascinating, I think, as we're looking at what, um, I guess, the Cartesian thought and the mind-body split and the scientific revolution and the growth of, of reason, which I love, you know, it's a lawyer and PhD, like it, I do get into all that too. But I also see the damage that's been caused by the industrial revolution and that line of thinking and how we've tried to tame, you know, what's wild and what's unknowable, what's chaotic and what's uh, really felt in an attempt to control our environment. And it's not working. It doesn't work for us on a personal level because we have dis-ease, we have stress, we have anxiety, we have a whole host of impacts on our health and well-being, um, you know, physical, emotional, mental, all of it. It's not working. Um, and it's not working for our planet and what we're doing to it. So there's so much to be said for coming back into alignment, into greater balance, into greater harmony with all of the forces of nature. And it, and it starts with, with listening and respect. Did the working with the moon make you think about the sun differently? <laughs> well, I think that it's a bit like when you're a fish in water and you don't really realize, you know, that all you've got around you is the water. I mean, we live in such a solar world, at least, you know, again, in you know, in, in where I grew up. And um, it's funny because the moon phases, so the eight moon phases in the in the month-long moon cycle are actually a product of 
the interplay between the moon and the sun and the earth. So it's actually all of it, like the moon orbits the earth and reflects the light to the earth from the sun. And so I feel like the the moon is almost like an integration of these different elements in a way which is is really beautiful to 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 play with on that metaphorical level as well as on a very practical level in our lives as well. Yeah, it's like the sun illuminates pieces of the moon, aspects of the moon mm-hmm. over the course of the cycle, but yeah. there's no escaping the sun there. It's like And oh, why would we want to? It's all perfect. It's pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) You do the practice, you continue to do the practice now for many years, working Mm -hmm. with this new intentions, every new moon, following them through the eight cycles. The cycle, is the right word? No. Eight moon phases in one moon cycle. Eight moon phases in one moon cycle. How has the practice changed for you over the years? I feel like when I started to work with the practice, I had linked it much more to tangible things. So for instance, I'd set an intention about how I wanted to get a pay rise at work. You know, I wanted more money because I needed, you know, to pay my rent. And I would set an intention around like, um, you know, wanting to find a new home and all of those things. And the practice works for that. You know, it, it definitely works for that. And it works for that in a sentence because... It is a way of getting very clear about what it is that you want to welcome into your life, what it is that you need, you know, on a very practical earthly level as well as on a heart and soul level. And that's the the meditation practice and what I run through in the first chapter of the book leads you through a, a, a process of determining that for yourself. And then it's around an alternating practice of, of meditating and allowing yourself to be with what you want so that you're able to draw it towards you so that you become magnetic, so you open up and you invite in and receive these opportunities. And then also taking discerning action so that you're able to focus on what is the most effective thing for you to do in order for you to to make your desire real. I love this because the form that you developed was so comprehensive in terms of taking the intention into something that is actually tangible and the pro- and and the aspects the steps that you can follow to do that it's super practical it's really practical you're a very practical person yeah <laughs> i used to be a lawyer I, I, clearly like it has to make sense <laughs> i know I, I mean this is the thing is that there's so few people in my woo world who were lawyers who bring that level of accountability into the spiritual work that they develop. So how did it then change for you? Mm. So where I was led to was around diving more deeply into the emotional world. And so getting off the emotional roller coaster of say feeling like, oh my God, it's the full moon and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, it's just like, I want to, <laughs> my head wants to blow off and and this gives me free reign just to, you know, be a complete menace or whatever. But I feel like I started to become a lot more interested in being able to cultivate a sense of emotional coherency within myself. And my process through this has been around a range of different things, including working with emotions as data, which is a big part of all of the emotional intelligence narrative. I'm sorry, say that one more time. The emo- emotional, what uh, you say that? It's, it's playing with the emotional. Emotions as data, which is part emotions of Emotions as data. Yes. Data. Oh, yes. yeah, data. Got it. That's yes. my accent. Sorry. <laughs> this is the New York in me. Data. Yeah. Um, well, that's good to know that I need to be aware of how that lands. Okay. <laughs> um with my accent, but I feel like, uh, yeah, so that's the emotional intelligence conversation, right? You know, there's a whole body of literature and research and work around that. But the Daniel Goleman book, Emotional Intelligence and the and the body of practices that emerged out of that research, which he wrote about and captured. You know, and he worked with those Yale um, professors to develop that as well. So right. um, whose names have just completely but what's interesting about it is that, you know, he's a heavy duty meditating yeah. practitioner and studies the meditation research as well, like what's going on with, you know, your 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 physiological response to being a meditator, where that gets you, how that makes you sensitive to certain kinds of things in the, you know, in your your awareness around your environment, and then developed 
this idea of emotional intelligence as mm. a way of, uh, of, of essentially formalizing that. Yes. And meditation and mindfulness is just so important in terms of uh, creating the pause um, as well. You know, it's a very useful tool and there's plenty of tools. Um, meditation has been a huge one for me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, beyond that, you know, looking at, you know, the elevation of emotions and the kind of power that we have to be able to to elevate our own emotional states by working with like gratitude and savoring and joy and being able to activate these emotions within ourselves and and working with emotions in other ways as well, which isn't just about managing or regulating the emotional self. And so I'm writing a whole book on this at the moment. So oh, yeah. yeah. It's so this is in terms of how the practice has, has changed for me. I feel like moving into this emotional realm is a neat fit with the I mean, my doctorate, which was on emotional well-being after trauma. And it's also been deeply healing for me as a as an individual. And I feel like it's the way that, you know, people are are suffering and causing suffering in their relating or in their work or in the social justice world in the way that we spoke about before by being highly emotionally reactive and not even having the self-awareness that firstly that that's even happening secondly the harm that it's causing to you thirdly the harm that you're causing to people around you but also fourthly like there could be a better way like you don't have to do it like that do you have got a level of personal power um which is extremely transformative to you and your environment and amplifies the the positive impact that you can have in the world when you're able to tap into that. So that's 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 where the practice has led me. You mentioned your empathic capabilities. And I'm wondering if as you developed your practice with the cycles of the moon and everything that sort of flows out from that, did you find that that shifted? Yeah. I feel like well, firstly, I became a lot more empathic and a lot more intuitive and a lot more in tune. But secondly, I also... When you say empathic, they mean like, oh, I kind of just like, I feel your pain? Or was there something else, like a, a, high, a, a different level of connection to, uh, to where other people were at? Okay. So I would say in terms of when I talk about the word empathy, what I mean is by feeling the pain or feeling the emotions of others. And sometimes that's pain. Sometimes that's like elevated emotions as well. True. Um, so there's that absorbent quality. Then there's also, um, I guess, an intuitive ability or an ability to tap into my own unconscious knowing, my deep body wisdom. Then I would also talk about uh, like a psychic ability, which is an ability to tap into greater knowing in other realms. That's not to do with me. Um but that's something different, I think. Yeah. And then there's also compassion, which is something different again. And we know that compassion activates a different part of the brain. And so what I found in working with the practice over time is that I've been able to delineate between those different concepts in a way which has been extremely helpful for me because I'm so sensitive and I can feel so much that's not mine. And I've needed to learn really healthy boundaries around what to feel and what it's not actually helpful to feel. And I've had to learn how to activate compassion so that I can show up and be of service and of use in the world without getting totally paralyzed by just feeling the agony of those with whom I work. And I mean, I now work with, um, you know, Aboriginal kids have been removed from their families, um, which oh, is man. something which is accelerating in Australia, which is really astonishing. Now, 20 today. years after the stolen generations, yes. And Whoa. so, you know, it's, it's and, and this is the travesty of colonization, the knock-on effects of colonization, intergenerational trauma. And it also, you know, and this is where the structural oppression piece comes in, but it's also about, you know, intergenerational healing and the potential that we have with the right support to be able to to not just break the um, the, the chains that bind us on that genetic level because of the the trauma and suffering that our ancestors have been subjected to, but also you know that ability to to you know to 
to, to not pass that on, whether that's to our children or whether that's on to, uh, you know, or to our biological children or whether that's onto the world in general. So it's a, it's such a powerful time and I feel like there's there's so much that we can do when we attend to this this deep inner, inner work and, and inner healing. This is the big work, I think. You know, as the son of a Holocaust survivor, mm. that's, you know, the genocide survivor, the traumas that get inherited yeah. from generation to generation that act in an unconscious way upon your un- understanding of what the world is like and why you're doing what you're doing in the world. Developing the spaces where the healing can really take place mm. so that the anger can be addressed. Yes. And the pain can be addressed. Yes. This is this is huge. And mm. the kind of practice that you've developed with around the moon cycles is you know one of the tools mm. that can help to sensitize people so that they can hold the space for that work. Mm. You know, there's like you mentioned there's so many tools emerging out there and it's beautiful to see people responding to what worked for you, what you developed for yourself, you know, in the privacy of your own journal. <laughs> and we're able to then develop into a presentational context. Boy, it's a terrible way to say it, but that's, a, you know, a book mm-hmm. that other people could connect to, to help them experience what you experienced in terms of incorporating this new kind of practice into their life, which really is just about connecting you to the ancient cycles of nature, which have always been there, which frankly, we just try not to pay attention to for some reason in our fucked up society. Ezzy, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Kim. I want to thank Ezzy Spencer for being a guest on the podcast and thank you too for joining us. You can follow Ezzy at her website, ezzyspencer.com and also she's on Instagram at Spencer. if you like what we're doing here on The Evolver share this episode with your friends on social media tell your friends at your yoga class and um, leave a star rating for us if you can you can send us a note at theevolver at evolver.net and we're getting some interesting questions they're coming in I'm planning to do a show where I answer a few of them um, haven't gotten to it yet, but it's definitely on the agenda and hopefully will happen soon. So if you got a good question, please send it in our direction. Remember to subscribe to The Evolver on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or on the podcatcher of your choice. And you can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the Acast team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song, and our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and here for a moment on the album Gone, Gone Beyond. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.